Hey, hey, it's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. This is my show. Thank you for tuning in. As always, today I'm talking to Nate Grahek, founder of StickyAlbums.com and Sticky.blog, just a whole uh, line of different products aimed at the photographer, the professional or prosumer photographer, business owner. A lot of interesting software products that he's built, a lot of interesting tactics that he's used over the years to really uh, dig in on this niche or niche. I hate that word, <laughs> but it's very relevant in this in this conversation today. Just a really amazing growth from like zero to 5,000 paying customers over these past few years. We talked about viral tactics, like ways that his customers spread the word virally. And we also talked about his uh, growing of the team, but keeping it pretty lean and mean and his path to uh, quitting his job and going full time on this thing and collaborating with the team. And yeah, you know, as always, we covered a lot of ground and we, we heard his whole story through the trials and tribulations of building a SaaS business. All pretty interesting, really talkative guy, really eager to share some tips and tactics. And we certainly got into those as well. So so yeah, you're going to enjoy this one. Here is my conversation with Nate Graha. Enjoy. All right. I'm here with Nate Grahek. Nate, how's it going? Very good, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We've, we've been having a pretty good conversation off air before this. I figured, you know what, better hit that record button because we've got a lot of good stuff to dig into here. So you're the founder of Sticky Albums and Sticky Apps. We're going to get into that. Looks like a software company for photographers. And you've been on this journey for quite a while. And uh, I know you've had some pretty great success with it. Um, but we're also going to get into, you know, managing a remote team, using video for the team and all sorts of other fun stuff. But before we dive into all that, why don't you give us kind of like the quick, you know, elevator pitch, if you will. What are you focused on these days? How do you describe your business? Oh, dear. We make <laughs> software products and training to help photographers with their marketing is the shortest way I've learned how to say it. <laughs> cool. And, and from what I understand, it's kind of like two sides of this business, right? You've got like GetStickyApps.com and StickyAlbums.com. That one's starting to fizzle. And as a good lesson, we could come back to the apps. I think in short, that was like the risk of my, it was like my second big idea. And it was so good on paper. And we sold it to our current customer base and it did really well for about two months. And then it's fizzled because it required our customers to do too much, to change too much, to really go out of their comfort zone. And so we've since come back to our bread and butter, which is helping portrait photographers market their business online. So that's sticky albums. Yeah. You're helping specifically portrait photographers. That's even, it's like a niche within a niche here. Exactly. <laughs> so then our third product was sticky folios, which is like lead pages for photographers, helping them build custom landing pages and marketing funnels with uh, sticky folios. And then this year we just launched sticky email, same way lead pages had to acquire drip. I was like, should we white label email service? And my team's like, no, let's build our own. And so we just launched sticky email. Naturally, we help photographers gather leads online. They have no idea what to do with a lead. So sticky email is pre-written email courses or sequences that photographers can put on their websites in a matter of minutes. You know, the mastermind groups that I'm in talking to someone who's who runs a pretty similar business to yours, but for a different niche, doing the same thing. Email marketing, like after doing the, the marketing site service for that niche, niche, you know, expanding into email marketing. But it's like, so many of us are like, well, there, there are the drips, there's the MailChimps, there's the Infusionsofts, like, why would you get into something like that? But when you're in this like 
smaller or not necessarily smaller, but a niche industry. Like you can do something that's really tailored for their specific needs. So I want to get into how you've started with this market and you've kind of branched out into these other products for the same people, which I always think is interesting. Like before we really jump back, like, can you give us any sort of like sense of, well, first of all, how many years has Sticky as a whole been around and any sense of like size today here in 2018? Yeah, totally. So I think that the backdrop really is I got really lucky with a, an okay idea, but mostly really good timing with Sticky Albums. And we grew from zero to 5,000 annual recurring customers in just two years. So the first two years was this really weird, like it's like almost been flipped. So when I talk to a lot of other SaaS founders, it's usually like two to three years of struggling for product fit and that like hockey stick growth. I had that first. And now the last three, four years have been like, okay, what's the next thing where we can take this and actually grow? Because I'm pretty upfront that we plateaued at about a, about five, now we're at about 7,000, but we're in our seventh year. And the biggest issue with I struggle with is churn, like any SaaS, but it's not churn to competitors, even though I have a decent amount of those. It's our industry has a lot of churn. So if my customers are, it's most, even though technically it's a B2B, I'm selling to portrait photographers. It's like prosumers kind of. Exactly. They don't actually think of themselves as business owners and they quit. They as quickly as they decide to be, I'm going to be a pro photographer, just as many of them are quitting or giving it up when they're like, oh, this is actually hard and I don't want it to be hard. Yeah, I, I do know everybody seems to know a photographer, a friend or a family member who's kind of doing it on the side, doing it on weekends. And uh, yeah, it's hard to turn it into that full-time thing. Right on. And it's what's cool is there's a, still a ton of people. It is like a side hustle. It, photography is a great side hustle if you've got the passion for it. And you know, I've seen the industry come a really long way with the availability of really good tools, scratching, patting my own back, and really good education. And how do you run and manage a side hustle that is profitable and thinking about it that way instead of it just being like a, an excuse to buy a nice lens. Yeah. And again, like later on, we're going to get into how you manage your team and everything. But what does your team look like today? And you're the sole founder of this, correct? Uh, yes. I had a, a uh, COO which recently moved on. There was some like profit share and equity, but I've since got that back. So we've got about 10, uh, six to seven of us are full-time. The rest are part-time contractors. All remote? All remote and all, all over the US. Great. Okay. So yeah, let's go back. Like, where did you come from before all this stuff? <laughs> well, I like to, you know, really go pretty far back. Like, what were you, um, what did you see yourself doing when you were younger? Like, did you always think you would own your own business and start something like this? It's a good question. Um, I think my dad owns his own business, a lawn, lawn care and snow removal here in Minnesota. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I got is from a teacher. I would come in every day and tell a story. It was a really cool, like open air, like, uh, conversational high school class. And I had such a different experience. I worked so much as a high school student. It was like an identity. I was like, oh, I'm the guy that has like bought his own Honda Civic when he was 17. And I had like an hourly job. Um, I worked way too much and sucked at school and sucked at homework. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just really unique. And the, the teacher said to me, Nate, you got to be careful when you let your business, your job does not define who you are. And I had no idea what he was saying then, but it's echoed since. Um, and it's something I've, I think as an entrepreneur, it's something we always have to struggle with. Like, hey, this is not just because the business is good. It's like the connection between my 
emotional health <laughs> in sales, right? That's hard to disconnect sometimes. Oh man, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, in my <laughs> other show that I co-host with Jordan Gow, we talk about all that all the time. I mean, it's like the MRR graph like directly maps to my state of mind and my mood. And it's, that can't be totally healthy. <laughs> no, it's, it's healthy for the business, I think in some senses, but it's not healthy for your own self. And so I've, yep. I'm, I can wrap up later with some tips I've learned to deal with that. But back to the beginning, I learned a lot from my dad. A lot of it was like everybody that we knew, all of our friends, all of our family came and worked for us. And I was teaching people how to drive manual transmission when I was 15 and driving these huge trucks and bobcats and heavy machinery as a young kid. And we always were, I always remember the drive from job to job. We were like workshopping the business nonstop. Like what's the right, this is the right way. This is the wrong way to do it. Um, and it really, I think, instilled an entrepreneurial mindset of how can you do a thing better? Yeah. I don't know if I really saw myself as owning, I, I had so many bad ideas that my wife just stopped listening to me over for a while. And so when this one finally started to stick, she was like, really, Nate? Like we, were, we, we had our second, she was not like eight and a half months pregnant <laughs> with our second kid. And I was like, yeah, babe, I think this is the one. <laughs> I think this is the, we've got to go. She's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> were you employed at that point? Like I so had a day job. I had, uh, I was working for six years for a larger software company. I didn't know software. I kind of learned online training. I was a trainer. I'd been mostly doing in-person classroom training in the corporate setting. But overnight during the recession, like in 08, all of the funding for that went away, meaning travel. So the company had a lot of its sales force all over the world, but we couldn't pay to bring them to training anymore. So I had to teach myself online training really quickly, <laughs> otherwise risk losing my job. In doing that, I also learned how to put training onto mobile devices. Um, well, at the same time, I had my first kid, fell in love with photography. He was doing portrait photography on the side. Oh, so you you were a portrait photographer yourself. Exactly. Yep. And I use that lightly now because I just have so much more respect for a full-time photographer, somebody who's really good. Um, I still love photography, but I don't do it enough to feel like a, a true pro anymore. Got it. So, okay. So you were at the the job as like a corporate trainer, right? Yeah. Yep. And I think the light bulb idea for sticky albums was while I had learned how to put training without going into the app store, because there was no way, like our company needed to have full control. They didn't want to like put things in the app store for our sales force, right? Um, since then, all kinds of cool tools for what I was doing are available, but I was kind of hacking my way through it. And then meanwhile, I was doing high school senior portraits for my cousin. And I, as a marketing tool, there's this common best practice where you create like a small run of 25 business cards with that client's pictures on them so that they pass those 25 business cards out to their friends. And I slow down there because that's essentially what Sticky Albums is, is a digital version of that. So my cousin said, oh, Nate, you know what? I don't know if my friends are going to want paper. Like they don't really, I don't think they're going to keep this. They don't want to put it in their pocket or whatever. I was like, wow, thank you so much for that. Like honest feedback. Cause I've been doing this for dozens of my customers and sometimes it would work, but most of the time it wasn't, it was costing me a bunch of money and time to print these cards. And I just had that great kind of simulation moment. I was like, Hey, what if I know how to make these cool, like offline uh, HTML5 web apps, like that's what they were. I didn't tell my cousin that. <laughs> so, but what if I can get give you your own app? You can put your own face on your own icon and then share that with your friends. 
And she was like, yeah, dude, that'd be pretty sweet. Just so that I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit unclear. Like who would the card be for? Is it for, you give the card to like potential clients that a photographer or? No, no, no. So it's like, so here's the problem. Like I could, version one is like, oh, thanks. I hope you like your session was great. I hope you liked your pictures, right? To the high school senior. Mm -hmm. I could give them my own business card and say, here, pass this out to your friends if you liked what you were doing, right? Nobody's going to do that. Instead, you would put their pictures. So it kind of took the place of like a wallet picture. I see. But it had my logo, my contact info on the back. But it was like them. It's like, hey, here, like you can pass that out to your family and friends, but it also has kind of the photographer's contact info on there. Exactly. And so it kind of worked. It was a pretty effective strategy for a while. But then more and more kids, like it just started to fizzle. Like the whole idea of like a wallet photo has, it used to be like a huge revenue driver and marketing driver for photographers, but it just, people don't care about wallet photos anymore because they have pictures on their phone now, right? Okay. So you're, you're still employed full time. You're doing the side hustle, you know, photography stuff. Yep. Like when does the, the thought of, you know what, at some point I want to quit my job and start my own thing come into play and like, were you following other like startups and things like that? Good question. Yeah. Yep. So I think that the first idea where I knew there was an option here is I saw some people that I bought some training. Remember, my brain is all about training and education, right? I bought some online training from another photographer. She was teaching Photoshop. It's like, okay. And I did the math quick. I was like, she can more money selling training as she is as a photographer. This is, there's something to this. So the first idea was I'm going to record video training, teaching other photographers how to make these custom HTML5 web apps. And then I share the idea with my neighbor who was luckily a developer. He's like, dude, you're really limiting your market. Like that means the only photographers who are going to buy your stuff are the ones that are willing to actually learn HTML and manage an FTP. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say the term HTML5 web app might seem pretty common to folks like us and whoever's listening to this. But for a, a photographer, yeah, they're not thinking about that. And so I was like, really, dude, are you sure? Like there's an idea. Here. It's like, I think the only SaaS app in our industry that I really modeled a lot of things after was Animoto. They had made this really sweet deal with Amazon's AWS like really early. And they just, it was a great Cinderella story how they scaled right. And it was a really good tool for photographers at the time. And I was like, well, I guess we could make a builder that's kind of like Animoto. But instead of spitting out a video slideshow, my tool spits out a website, like a, a custom website that acts and behaves like an app without it actually having to be in the app store. So he, I, I shopped that idea around and all the local dev shops were like, like yeah, the MVP will be, be about 10 grand. I was like, oh, crap. So, so you have this idea for what this app could potentially do and maybe some ideas of what it would look like, but you're not a software developer. You, you wouldn't like hack this together yourself. No, I just knew HTML. Yeah. Okay. So you would go around to like some agencies some, some development shops and see what it would cost to get it built. Exactly. And they all said right about 10 grand, which is pretty interesting. But then I was, I I knew quickly, I give credit to my wife. I didn't know what the lean startup methodology meant, (laughs) but what year are we, is is all this happening? This is, this is 2011, 2012. Okay. I like bought the LLC in in January of 2012. And my wife was like, well, great that we're not mortgaging the house for you to spend 10 grand on this. That's just, that's too bad. And so I was like, well, okay, I'll just figure out what I can do next. So I was listening to Mixergy at the time and somebody, one interview was like, yeah, we just built a sales page, started taking money before we actually had the product and we we're just doing everything behind the scenes. I was like, oh, 
So I just put a sales page up and I mimicked my sales page after Animoto, after all these other online services, made it look as if they created, they uploaded their pictures and their information into a Dropbox folder. And then I built these things for them, but I was selling it as an like unlimited annual membership. <laughs> so it wasn't going to be scalable if I had to do all of these myself. And I justified it with, well, if this doesn't work and it fizzles out, I'll just give people their money back. So I started doing that. I made it, had some like decent quick sales. Yeah. Especially like a simple HTML5, you know, one pager app or whatever. Like that's, that is simple enough for you to just set up manually for each customer early on, right? But it was unlimited. That's the thing. The, I, the marketing tactic requires that they, like, they should really be making them for every one of their customers. Uh, right. Some portrait photographers have like 50 to 100 customers a year. And so in the early days, I was only had to make like a few every night. But then I did like this. Um, it was kind of like a Groupon style promo that really launched us. I had some small automations behind the scenes. But long story short, I had to make them manually still. What was your uh, initial pricing for that first? Like? I was like one one twenty nine a year or something, something way, way too small. Wow. But then we did this Groupon essentially, which meant I didn't have to pay any money up front for the marketing kind of push. But that it was a site called Photodoe and they had great traction. They were like peaking at that moment, same way Groupon was. And they only did one deal for like three days and it got tons of eyeballs. And so sure enough, we sold like 186 of them or something. And which I essentially made, I netted 10 grand in three days. But the scary part then is I had... 200 customers who were uploading their pictures to me every night <laughs> and I had to turn around and make these apps for them just as my second kid was born. Oh, wow. It was pretty intense. So that within those 30 days, I made 400 sticky albums manually, really burning the oil. Like I was doing eight hours of the day job and eight hours at night. It was pretty bad. Incredible. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it any other way. I was glad I, I didn't risk anything really other than my time. Yeah. And so, all right. So you did the big kind of Groupon style thing that really gave you that first splash of exposure. But I'm curious, like who were these customers? Like we talked about, like, are they the the hobby kind of side hustle photographers? Or are you getting professional, you know, full-time photographers? It really ran the gamut. That's the benefit of having like a $200 annual membership is anybody buys it. It's the aspiring photographer because they're used to, photographers were a good market to sell into at this time because they were already starting to buy more training and they also were used to spending a lot of money on gear. Yeah. And so they're really hunger and motivated to go buy the next awesome camera or lens or lights or whatever. And a $200 price point is not that much relatively. If I, I was promising helping them book two, three, four more clients each year. And that was, it was proving out. It was actually working. Um, so then the word of mouth grew like wildfire. And to this day, we book both people that are in their, their first year, month of business and their like 30th year in business. It's all, it runs the gamut. How about the focus on portrait photographers specifically? Like, did you always have that focus from the very beginning? Or, or what about things like wedding photographers or like music photographers or anything like that? Good question. Um, wedding falls into portraits. Um, so it's oh, okay. like portraits, families, babies, newborns, seniors, et cetera, where the customer is paying for like the session and, and it's like products and prints and books and stuff like that. Got it. What I, I try to go after like the commercial side where they're doing just like a handful of shoots a year for like big companies and my product doesn't help them directly because it's a 
the way it really works is getting, imagine whether you're, I'll just do two examples, like a wedding photographer. Your couple gets their own app to share after the wedding. They share with guests who they're sharing it with, their bridesmaid, their couples, the whole, everybody who was at the wedding. So it's really good marketing for the photographer. The high school senior gets, after their shoot, they get their own app with 10 of the best pictures. And the high school senior is sharing it at like lunchtime with guess who, right? And so it's this really good word of mouth marketing tool. That's why it's worked so well. And the more customers that, the more portrait customers that the photographer has, um, because it was an unlimited membership, the more valuable it was because they would build dozens and dozens of these for one for every single customer. And it just, cause you never knew, like you, you get one client, you're like, Oh my God, this one's gonna, gonna refer us like crazy. And then nothing happens. So you really had that, that viral loop kind of built in. And is that what really took off right away after that initial splash, the 400 customers and like, yeah, that just started working right out of the gate, getting the really good testimonials. And I think that there's a huge advantage when you're doing a SaaS that helps with sales and or marketing right? It's so easy to have a really awesome ROI like message when I'm helping people book clients. Like you give me 200 bucks and I'm going to, all I have to do is help you book one client this year and you're already ROI positive. Yeah. Awesome. So it starts kind of spreading and that word of mouth viral loop is working for you. You're still hustling to churn these things out manually by yourself and you're working the full-time job. How long does that last? So luckily I went back to one of, I picked the right horse and got a really great partner to do the first MVP, or I guess the first, like, yeah, I guess that's still the, the, an actual software pro, like builder. Uh, I said, Hey guys, can you do this like this week? Here's a check for 10 grand. <laughs> they were like, I don't think any of them ever thought they'd see me again. <laughs> right. They were kind of surprised. And they said, well, actually we were going to try to do it ourselves and it's probably going to take us about four to six months. I was like, Oh no, we can't do that. So luckily I convinced them to do it in 30 days. And they, they hired their own firm and they managed that firm out of uh, the Ukraine and they delivered, they delivered a working MVP in 30 days. I really feel grateful and lucky that that happened because I've since heard so many horror stories. If you're not careful with scope that other firms will go, oh, sorry, well, we didn't know this was going to be so hard. We need another 10 grand. Yeah. That would have happened to me. I would, I would have probably just failed right there. Yeah, that's interesting that you, okay, so you had was it like a local or US based firm and then and then they handled the the outsourcing. It was local. You're in the Twin Cities. They were big fans of the book Rework and I had just finished reading it and they were really good at like mentoring and coaching me. Okay, Nate, what? Of course that's those are all of the things that you want. I had a pretty good mock up in Keynote or in PowerPoint of what I wanted it to look like. And we like had banged on the wireframes a little bit. And I mean, you're somewhat technical though, because you were, you were building HTML5 mobile apps, right? Like, yeah, I, a little bit. I, I've always been a nerd in, in like computers and stuff, so that helped a little. But really, their coaching and saying, "What can wait? Like, what do you apps? What is this thing? What's the bare minimum that this thing needs to do?" And here's the funny part. I always forget this part of the story is I was so excited to launch the MVP. Like guys, guys to my existing customers, remember I, have, I was doing them manually for them. <laughs> yeah. It's like, guys, check it out. Look, it's going to do it for you. And they're like, Nate, this is harder. Remember all we had to do is put full <laughs> videos and pictures into an, a Dropbox folder and you did the rest. Now right. we have to do it. Yeah, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, whoops, sorry. It's All we had to do was email you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm curious, like, so some of those like technical decisions up front, obviously you you worked with the firm and I guess they advised you on this stuff, but like things like tech stack, like deciding between Rails or PHP or something like that, like 
Any of those decisions, like did you just give free reign to them to give you those recommendations or what were you thinking there? Yeah, I think that the I went with the first decision was just like betting on a horse, right? I had three developer agencies, like two different agencies and one like individual guy, right? And I was like weighing with some of my existing network, like what's the right call here? And I think they won the business because they treated me the most like real. They actually respected the idea and like spoke to me on my level. And so I really ended up like gradually, I trusted them uh, that they knew best. And so as they advised me on tech stack, one of the other, the biggest decision was, should it be a web app or should it be Adobe Air? That was really big at the time, right? But I think that was just the news that Apple wasn't going to support Flash really had just happened. We, I, we weren't really sure, but I think I, I saw the writing on the wall pretty quickly. I said, okay, let's not do air. Yeah, it sounds like it kind of dodged a bullet there. <laughs> yeah, and I know others, companies that didn't and paid the price. So I was glad we did that. But we did PHP instead of Rails. And then it was just built. I mean, it's hard to like hindsight's 2020. Um, it, we built on like DreamHost, which was terrible, very unscalable. We had this, and I, what worked is that within 30 days, they got me a live workable thing. So I could fight, I could fight another day. So I, I have huge gratitude for them pulling that off. Yeah. Huh. I mean, that's actually something that I've gone a little bit back and forth on, but I like in my SaaS app and a couple of different apps that I've built, I spoke to a couple of development agencies or small development shops with teams who would kind of manage their own team building and processes and everything. And I've always fallen on the other side where I just prefer to hire one or two individual developers and work with them directly myself. And for better or worse, I like that because I do a lot of the design and and stuff myself. But at the same time, like there have certainly been pitfalls where I think I could have ended up with a better final product with a proven team. It's interesting. I think where I got lucky is we did like fixed bid. We like, they were really good. I think as I've learned hiring all different types of roles now, the best thing that I judge somebody's expertise on and how accurately they can estimate how long something will take. Right. Because that's the hardest thing to do, right? Especially in development, it's exponentially harder. And so when I said, look guys, this is, let's agree on like these 10 things and I need it done. The only thing that could maybe slip is time. That's not gonna come out of my end. That's gonna come out of your end, right? When we first agreed to what's going to get done, you can push back on some of these features, but this is what we need built and here's how much I'm going to give you. And we ran that way for the first year and a half, two years, where I would then, um, the app would run, they'd handle bug fixes here and there. Luckily, there weren't too many, but then I would make a list of like next features to build and I go, hey, here guys, here's like the top three features. How much is that going to cost? Okay, here's another five grand for 30 days. Right. And then they'd deliver on that. Those are the good old days. Now I burned through that much in a <laughs> couple of weeks. Yeah, totally. We got two full-time developers. That costs a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So, okay. So then where do we go from there? Like the customer base just continues to grow pretty steadily in that first couple of months there? Yeah. And actually, let me ask like, okay, so at first you're doing the manual build out for customers. You said that they actually built the functional SaaS version of this within 30 days. Was that how soon you were actually able to launch it to customers? Exactly. Yep. And what was that like? Like, how did customers take it? It was just a, there was just a handful of people that were like, oh, this is harder. And I was like, no, sorry. But, and I just, it was just education and positioning. And they were eventually loved it. Cause I, okay, yeah, I don't have to wait overnight for these. I can get them all done right now myself. Right. And I just continued to really listen. And I think that from a marketing perspective, 
I didn't have my own audience. Clay Collins, the founder of Lead Pages, loves talking about minimum viable audience. And so I, I didn't have that, but I was able to tap into places I knew who did. And I would rent their space. I would rent an email blast. I would, I would pay for a blog post or a blog review. I would show up when it was early days. It was really easy to get an interview about this awesome new tactic and strategy because I was helping them create good content. And that really helped get the word out really fast. And you're going to places that specifically have audiences of photographers. Exactly. Yep. And it was already, I got lucky that there was already a ton of them. There was a lot of really healthy, thriving online communities with tons of traffic, tons of engagement, tons of trust. And I'd show up and talk about this cool new thing. And that really helped things go like gangbusters the first couple of years. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like picking a niche to go into this, this really does seem like a good one because it has that. It has that thing where there are so many of these people in the world, but they're also really active online and they're talking about gear. They're talking about strategies. There are a lot of blogs like they're easy to reach online, right? Yeah, I got lucky that way. Totally. Yeah, because that's I feel like a lot of people overlook that. I've certainly overlooked that in the past. I mean, I spent four years building a business for restaurant owners, which was, uh, you know, kind of tough to reach those people online. In six months in when I decided to quit the day job. I was like super bullish and excited. I remember this beer I had early days with Clay Collins. And I was like, dude, I made this. All right. So we've got the app built. And now I bought the domain slides that stick. And we're going to make it's going to be like this online presentation sharing tool for salespeople, for teachers, for professors, for blah, blah, blah. Right. Like you're going to expand way beyond your niche. Exactly. He's like, Nate, what do you do all day, every day? I was like, well, mostly building relationships with other people in the photography industry. He's like, okay. So where are you going to market and sell this other thing to other industries? How are you going to get in there? Don't like he's I, so many entrepreneurs make this mistake. It's not the idea. It's not the product. It's your domain expertise that really has saved you. Yeah. And I've taken that to the bank year after year, going deeper and deeper into our niche instead of trying to go broad. Awesome. So you quit your job six months in and, uh, what was it like when you first became, you know, self-employed and working on this thing full time? Like what was the immediate, impact on the business by having all that extra time to devote to it? I think to be honest, I don't know if it got that much more time. (laughs) Um, But what was able to stabilize was my family. Because it's like you've got like day job, business, family, social life, like pick two, (laughs) whatever. And I had totally ignored for six, six, seven months, like my marriage and being a dad and it was as a new dad. It was like super, I was burning everything. And being able to quit the day job was hard. It was scary because I was like, we had to rely on my wife's insurance and all that. But sales were really strong and we had a lot of money in the bank. I was not borrowing anything, just reinvesting what we made in sales. And I think the biggest curve I show in the first few months was I finally hired a support rep. And that's where my the time I was spending on the business was changing. Is so I would have record month, terrible month. Record month, terrible month. So I'd have record month, I'd get a bunch of new customers and then I'd spend the next month supporting them myself. When I hired my first support rep, then sales continued to take off like crazy. So I could focus all my time marketing and selling. So, okay, so you kind of hire someone for that tier one or all the support pretty early on there and then you can devote all of your time to sales and marketing. What were you doing beyond just you know spurring on the uh the word of mouth viral loop and going out to blogs and getting 
is that kind of what you spent your time was just like kind of developing relationships with bloggers and people with audiences? Yeah, it was a bit. It was a mixture of of like helping create good content for other people that blogged and did interviews and podcasts. And then just out of like my own curiosity and to create a blog, I was always been terrible at like sitting down to write a blog post, but I love scheduling a meeting with a customer and interviewing them like similar like this, like just asking them how they're using it, what's working, what isn't other cool tips they're doing in their business. And that's driven our content strategy for all six years. And then I just turn that recording of my customer into a blog post and a podcast. Love it. So that really helped to get the word out and treat, just really show people exactly how to use it. Because for some people who are self, early adopters, they got it right away. But then the other part of the market, they really needed more handholding. And so being able to listen to other photographers who are actually doing it and using it, that really helped us also. Very cool. So yeah, I mean, like, what were some of like those next few milestones or developments as the team grew, as the customer base grew? Yeah, I think growing the team was tricky. I think the the next big hire was switching from contract based, like project based developers to full time. Yeah, that's kind of tricky, right? Because they did you end up hiring anybody from that agency or anything like that? Or did you have to like transfer the code base to somebody new? <laughs> we had to rewrite it. Okay, because uh, the first version was like crippling. As we grew, it was just getting terribly slow. Like, Every time somebody visited, we probably at that time we had several thousand sticky albums made. Um, the database had to make like a couple dozen calls every time somebody visited. It was just not infrastructure to scale. And at the same time, um, DreamHost was like, yeah, you're on a, a dedicated server, but your storage caps out at 500 gigs and you can't do anything. We can't make that bigger. Yeah. And this was kind of at a time when like AWS was not as widespread as it is now. Right. It was getting there. Luckily, my development team now, they helped me essentially rewrite the app from the ground up so that it would run on AWS. So that was a big milestone um, to really help us just scale from an infrastructure standpoint, more reliability and all of the good things that come with Amazon. And you stuck with PHP or, or Rails? Or? Nope, it's a, it's a Rails app now. Rails okay. and the S3 and all kinds of fun stuff that I don't fully understand. Got it. Um, then after that, it was hiring kind of an operations person. I was kind of floundering in the details I was missing. My strength as a CEO is like big picture, big ideas, training, teaching, focusing on the customer and building networks, that kind of stuff. I get hot and sweaty. If like if my spreadsheet is open for more than 10 minutes, I'm like, okay, can we be done now? Yeah. So I knew I needed somebody that could pay attention to the details. And he, he was really awesome for a few years. I guess I want to kind of stop you there because, okay, you, you had the customer support rep, then you hire a full-time developer, which obviously we know salaries for talented, experienced developers are pretty competitive in the U.S. Yeah. And an operations person, I'm sure, is is a similar kind of situation. I know that a lot of people struggle with this, and I get this question a lot, and I've struggled with it myself. Is like, how do you know when you're actually ready to hire? Both the business needs the people, but you have the financial when you're self-funding this thing, like the financial flexibility to be able to take on a salary or multiple salaries like that. Like, were you thinking about that for those first few hires and, and kind of bouncing, like paying yourself and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. It's good to slow that down. It's easy to go fast through those details, but actually went a lot slower. I'm a big fan of hiring super fast. Like I've hired a lot of people, but just for contracts, I'll hire you for like a $500 contract in like a 20 minute phone call. So awesome. Cool. Instead of trying, I think the old model of corporate like interviews of like having 20 interviews to see if, if we can predict that you are good and that we will also work well together. Yeah. It's like a it's exercise in futility. Let's just try it. 
So here's 500 bucks, do this project and we'll see how we work together and see if you know what you say, you know, okay, cool. You earned your right to do another one. Let's do another one for a thousand bucks. And so almost all of my team started that way where I would start them as contractors. And then as some just kind of, we parted ways and it was all good. Um, and others have turned into full-time employment. Got it. But I guess I, what I mean is, yeah, like, like, did you have the revenue to just immediately support those hires? Like was MRR really growing that fast or were you hiring ahead of anticipated growth? No, I was still, I mean, we, I was always hiring people with cash in the bank. So I think I was really lucky. Growth was strong. We grew from zero to a million in ARR on any recurring revenue within two years. So I had cash, which was good. Wasn't tons of it. It was still spending a lot. Marketing got really expensive. Did you start getting into like paid traffic and things like that? Um, no, it was a lot of endorsement deals that can be really, really lucrative up front, but then eventually still get really expensive. Let's see what else. So yeah, a lot of times it was just necessity. I was barely conscious enough as we're moving so fast, like, okay, I got to hire people that are good at the things that I'm terrible at, both in personality and things, right? And like their job set. Of course, I, ha- I need really good developers. Of course, I need a detailed person and a support. And so a lot of it came from necessity and I was just backfilling as we went um, so that I could stay focused on sales and marketing. Very cool. So, okay. So how do we get into the like expanded product line? Like what was the first thing outside of stickyalbums.com? Yeah, that was kind of just, I I said earlier, like a lesson in having an idea that was too good on paper and I fell into the trap and I'm pretty sure that Clay warned me of this also, but I had to go and learn the lesson myself anyway. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. It was just, it was a platform for photographers to sell and build marketing websites for other small businesses. Um, so they could go so to like a, a lawn care provider. They could go build their website. And what do you need for a website? Well, you need pictures. Oh, the, the lawn care provider can't afford $5,000 for a good website. Oh, we'll give it to them where they can, you can bundle the pictures, the video, the commercial, the website hosting, everything into a monthly fee. They're happy because they can afford 50 bucks a month. Photographer's happy because now they have monthly recurring revenue. Right. It's like this great story to tell. And we did really, really well up front. But then in order for it to work, a photographer who now I've learned, so few of them are actually business, to think of them as business owners. Right. You have to you have to rely on them selling that and scaling it. and Yeah. Have the chutzpah to go actually go sell something, go sell a package like that to a business owner. There's just a really small addressable market. And so luckily I didn't lose my butt completely on it. Um, Still a profitable venture, but it just didn't grow as quickly as Sticky Albums did. It didn't add an additional million in revenue every year. So then um, the next one was just going back. I think the lesson I continue to learn is making sure I maintain trust with my customers and doing right by them. Right. Giving them like first access, listening to what they're asking for. And every time we launch a new product, they really do help us stay afloat because we continue to sell really well each new product into our customer base. And that that helps instantly pay for how expensive it is to make a new product. I'm curious about the, the decision to go into additional products because I deal with that myself. And even like, you know, starting up new lines of business within the same, like to the same customer base, like, you know, from the outside in or my mastermind groups or whoever, it's like, well, why don't you just stick with the thing that's been working and just keep focusing on that? Is the decision for you like you need something new to work on, you need something fresh, or is it like a business decision or what what kind of led you to start expanding? Good question. I think that 
it's a combination of all those for me. When I slow down, I go, okay, maybe where would I be if I would have just decided to focus and just, what if we just made the one product like way better and we did our marketing way better and we did everything like maybe that would, there's a compelling argument that I would maybe be the same spot I am now, or maybe a little bit farther. I don't know. It's hard. It's like, that's the trade off of being an entrepreneur. You don't know what's down door number two if you don't go down it. Yeah. I think so many of us, it's like that opportunity cost. It's yeah. like that always leans us towards like, you know what, might as well just try the new thing. And I think it's, it's something that's what we're good at. We're good at starting new things. So it's hard to like stay focused. I think where I succeeded in staying focused was staying in my domain, staying in what I know, where I know how to build like with my customers and I know where to find them. So I've gotten really good at that and continue to build trust in the industry. And then it's been really hard to stay focused within my niche. I've decided I'm, there's so many people want us to do things like there's like five different, no, actually there's a couple dozen studio management software tools or SaaS tools out there. There's like delivery of, they're called proofing tools where you deliver the gallery online, you online sales. There's a couple dozen of those companies. I draw on the line says, I'm not going to build any of that. We are just going to stay in our job is helping photographers get customers. That's it. And that's still too broad. <laughs> yeah. But my, it's just marketing tools, period. But yeah, like it started with that kind of business card idea. Yeah. Into it's still sticking with that theme, but you know, now getting into like email marketing for photographers and stuff like that. What's I think what's interesting, I'm learning this year and, and then last year too, is where we did like lead pages equivalent and now email marketing Right. is the first tool, even though it was an online tool, it really wasn't online marketing in the way that, that you and I in the audience thinks about online marketing and email automation and all of that stuff. It was essentially just a better business card. It took what's happening. And I would always tell people they get hung up with the first product with sticky albums of like, how does it do sharing to Facebook? And we all of these features and Facebook's changing shit every other month. It was, so that would break. And I'm like, guys, don't get distracted by the online thing. Where it works is when your client gives their phone to their friend and in person, they talk about you. That's why sticky albums works. And that, that is not online marketing. That's like gorilla bootstrap, like boots on the ground marketing. It's just a better flyer. It's a better business card where online marketing or funnel marketing is more like, hey, here's this cool thing. Can I get your email address? And then can I send you some emails to like build a relationship and report? Can I send you some good content? And then gradually you get to know me and then buy. That's online marketing. What it's taken me two years to realize is it's really hard to teach somebody why that works, how to build it, and where to start. And I feel like with a lot of these like offline service businesses like photography and whatnot, a, a lot of the fancy funnel stuff and the automation stuff that we all work with every day, like doesn't necessarily work for, <laughs> for a local photographer, right? Like they have to keep it a little bit more basic. Right. Like even like a, like a basic campaign autoresponder, like an email sequence, you know, that to us, it's like common knowledge, but to them, it's that's simple enough for them to do and use, but it's also simple enough for them to to get a handful of, of clients, which is really all their business needs at that level. Exactly. Very cool. So yeah, that's where I'm headed now. It's been pretty fun. I think that uh, when I'm, I get excited about email this year is, I think with a SaaS product, there's this idea, especially with annual recurring products, where it's kind of like a healthcare club, where we all know like if everybody who had a membership to Lifetime like showed up tomorrow, there wouldn't be room for us all. 
like a lot of SaaS businesses run with just a portion of their users actually using it. And that, that really bums me out. And I've, I've learned like different ways to keep my users engaged and teaching them new things. But the reality continued to be that my customers had to give me five minutes in my system for every portrait client they had in order for them to really see the value of my tool. And luckily a huge chunk still does, but a growing number of people, they get busy. Like it's some of the most successful photographers like, oh, Nate, we love your stuff. Oh shoot, I keep forgetting to log in, we're too busy. Yeah. And they forget to market. I was like, crap, okay, all right. But then flip the coin now with sticky email. If they give me 30 minutes to pick a, a pre-written email sequence, a follow-up nurturing sequence, and they grab one of our embed forms and we give them an exit intent form to pop on their website, if they never log in, they set them up. I'm giving, at least I'm giving them value forever. As long as this thing is collecting leads and nurturing and doing it all of this, that's true automation. So I get really excited about that. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that too with software ideas. It's like, how can you get closer to that set it and forget it kind of situation where like you don't necessarily need a fancy dashboard or reports or anything. It's like if you just solve a problem and press play, that should it be it. I think there's two things that are happening as we go. Like you talked about how like photographers were a cool place to go and how building an email marketing tool when there's already hundreds of them out there, like two things have to happen. You've got to innovate, add something special to what your niche cares about. And the other big thing is it actually needs to be like done for you or way simpler because we're dealing with people who now are not necessarily internet savvy or internet marketing savvy and have no desire or need to be. And that's, that's the new, I think, space for SaaS to hang out in is how can we take the giants who are, are, are forever going to go after the broad market and how can you build something that's like, like magical for your tiny niche? Cause it really does work with like very, with just minutes of time and huge return. I love it. And, you know, for those who are still at, at like a smaller bootstrap level, you know, things I've been talking about forever is like that combination of of software and a productized service where, you know, either you build your own kind of custom software to power your service or you just leverage an existing off the shelf software to power your service behind the scenes and make it really fast and, and efficient for your team to set up your customers. Totally. Love it. So, you know, before we kind of wrap up here, let's talk a little bit more about like the internal operations stuff at your team. So I believe you said you're a team of nine today, right? Yeah. Nine to 10 ish, depending. Yep. Yeah. So what, what's been kind of on your radar, you know, lately of how you guys, guys kind of collaborate and, and work with them? Um, so I think that the first thing is at high level is just really respecting flexibility and knowing that while I can't necessarily afford to pay people their market rate, I've been able to get amazing talent and amazing passion engage people by just trusting them and letting them do their work whenever they want to. That's probably been number one. At first I was like, oh, should I be hiring? Should I build it like it's trendy, like startup with beer on tap and foosball? You can't compete with that. It's like, no. I was like, no, I don't want to. I have two kids myself. I really like being in my own home office by myself. That point right there is something that has been on my mind constantly these last couple of years, building the team at Audience Ops. Like, there are so many people who are super, super talented and super hungry for that flexible situation. Yep. That's what I've learned. They've got little kids at home. They're traveling full time. They're doing whatever. They, they want to do awesome creative work, 
but they don't want to commit to like a full-time in-office job anymore. Exactly. I didn't know that. I kind of stumbled into it after I, I stopped feeling insecure about it after a couple of years. I got to see like side by side with Clay at lead, growing lead pages and raising venture. And I was like, you know what? That's so awesome for him. I know now that I've seen it and I've gotten to go visit, like, oh my God, I I was like, Clay, how do you get anything done? This is so, oh my God, I got to get out of here. I'm like stressed out. I finally grew the courage and the confidence in myself that like, nope, that's not what I want to build. I want to build something where I can still, I don't ever, I want my kids to know me in 10 years. I want my marriage to survive all of this. And I want to have a team that's like, it's like really fun and carefree. Do we get Do we go as fast and as crazy as other startups? I don't know. I don't really care. So first, just trust and flexibility. Let's see. But now let's get tactical. I'll try to keep this succinct. But the pitch here, as I I told Brian in the pre-call, is I've been making videos my whole career, training and otherwise, right? But I started using it differently based on a couple new tools in the market that are free that has no other software. I've been using software tools my whole business career. No other tools have so drastically changed what my day looks like. So there's, I'll start with just being specific, uh, loom, use loom.com or soapbox is another one of my favorites by Wistia, where it's a browser plugin that records your screen and your face. If you want to on a webcam and your audio. Super simple, right? Yeah, Loom is great. The one just before Loom and Wistia's thing came out, I was using a very similar thing called view edit or uh, is it view edit? But yeah, lately I've been using Loom and it it's just the whole experience is like so seamless and it's so fast. It's really, really cool. I think that, I mean, I always struggle with which order to go in here, but I'll start here. So there's this saying, a mantra I've been using for a while is the key to success is doing your future self favors. And what I wasn't realizing because just, and also like, just because you can, doesn't mean you should, right? I knew video editing. I can edit video really well but editing video takes so much damn time. And when I was going to make a video in the whole workflow of making the video, I'm going, okay, don't worry. I'll edit this later. I'm being a huge dick to myself, my future self, because that's going to take me at least double the time to edit that and publish it. Where um, I always tell people most videos shouldn't be longer than five minutes because people won't actually listen to them all. So keep them short. And if you make a mistake, turn it off and try again. And you can do that four times and you're still going to get that video done quicker than if you decided you're going to edit out mistakes later. So what are you, um, what are you creating videos for? Is it like quick messages to the team? Is it like support docs? Like what is it? Yep. So now let's get to like use cases. Some of my favorite ones, um, replying to customers. So when I realized that how quick this could be, what changed for me Instead, I used to make videos when it was just warranted. The extra editing work was one to many. Now I realized it makes sense for me to make a video for one to one. And where the true, my true world has changed is email. As I reply to most of my emails now with a video. I'm not the greatest typer either, so that's what's helped. And I've just learned I can say so much more. If I'm trying to get somebody's attention or I'm trying to reply and answer a, a question, even if it's just about a document or edits to a website or how to build this thing, I'm speaking as I'm showing that page or that document, that edit I want made to the website. It's pretty powerful. And I thought, similar to, I saw you use Calendly. When I started, first started giving people my calendar link, like what we're essentially doing, you're saying, hey, here, um, do a job for me. Find time on my calendar and yeah. schedule a meeting for us, right? I thought I was like, oh my gosh, I'm being so rude. 
But over and over, people reply, oh my God, when Calendly first came out, they're like, whoa, that was so fast. You saved us both so much time. How do I get that tool? Same thing's happening with video. I thought I was being like long-winded and I thought I was being lazy because it saves, I can say so much more in a five-minute screen recording than I could ever write in a 30-minute email with like images and arrows and crap, right? Yeah. And the receivers are going, oh my God, thank you so much for making that video for me. I totally understand what you mean now. It is interesting, like the use cases, like where to use video and where it might not make sense. Like I've, I've been using it, I do use it in certain spots. I do occasionally reply to emails, usually like within my team, sometimes to customers with a quick video to kind of show them rather than just describe it to them. And it, it has helped when I'm working with developers to show them, hey, here, here's how to replicate the bug and here's what I'm seeing and, and that kind of stuff. But in my, since I'm running a service business and it's highly process oriented, we have a ton of written SOPs, you know, standard operating procedures. And I have a couple of videos in there, but I found that that's kind of tough because we're constantly going back and improving our processes. So I don't want to have to go back and re-record videos. Um, screenshots are good and written bullet points, but they're easier to go back and edit. But when it comes to training and stuff, I do have like some video guides that I've built out with Loom and whatnot. And, and those are nice to have to kind of onboard people. I think that my team is pretty great. It forces me to not micromanage too. Where I, I love doing it is at the top of a project where, and I'll, I'll couch this with how much I'm, I'm really aggressive in eliminating interruptions and protecting my whole team's uninterrupted time. And especially I think with a remote team, any team, like we just interrupt each other so much because a lot of time what's happening is you have an idea for something that's fresh in your mind, right? And that is how we justify interrupting somebody else. As we go, I don't want to, I've been thinking about this for an hour now. I'm going to interrupt you and so we can talk about it because I need your help to finish it. Or I just need to talk about it. That's the weird one, right? There's that developer best practice, like, hey, go tell the stuffed monkey in the corner your problem out loud before you go interrupt somebody. Because sometimes just talking out loud fixes, you talk yourself into a solution um, without interrupting somebody. And so I save my own interrupting my team by saying, okay, I have a project I need done. In the past, it would mean let's schedule a meeting and I'm going to forget what it is I wanted to do or let's interrupt them. And none of those are good. So now as I have the thing, I, I build it out in my head. I hit record. I say, here's what I think should happen. Boom, boom, boom. Make Turn this video into a Trello card with a checklist and then I can follow along as you get this done. And if you have any questions, make a video and let me see what you've got so far. And that has saved our team so much time where Again, we just trick ourselves into thinking, yeah, you're saving your own time when you interrupt somebody, but at the cost of their time, which we all know is so much, especially when you're working on really complex things. When somebody rips you out of it, they'll never get done or it'll take hours to get back into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like having those videos are kind of leapfrogs past a lot of the, the miscommunication steps that might happen. I'll end with one or more of my favorite use cases where we, we kind of comes back into hiring and when to hire, how to hire. Oftentimes when it's time to hire, you're too busy. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh crap, I'm so busy. I need to hire somebody. Oh wait, hiring somebody is going to cost me 80 hours. Where's that time going to come from? Right. And so what I do is again, I believe that 
hiring somebody, it's just as important to give them an example of what it's like to work for you, right? We make it so lopsided, but we forget is it's like, you don't need to make yourself look so polished and amazing. You don't want to, you want to be authentic and real in your job postings because you want to attract people that are actually going to fit your culture and enjoy working for you. And so I make really casual, low budget videos of myself going, oh, hey guys, here's the job. Here's what I think you're going to do. I'll have some slides. I'll walk through like what we do and what why we do it. Here's my personality. Here's how I work. If you think you're a good fit, make me a two minute video of why you think so. When I first started it, I would, it would filter a lot more because the first few had to like use their iPhone or something and figure out how to upload it. And a lot of people would just give up. But now I say, here, go use Loom and make me a video. And so I, for my last hire, I had 200 applicants and 50 people made videos. Wow. You do this for all roles, like yep. developers, customer support? See, I haven't done it for developers yet. Mm-hmm. I think that developers, my developer friends say that developers probably wouldn't make a video. Yeah. <laughs> and you might, in that role, you might miss out on some pretty solid developers. Some pretty talented people yeah. who are like, no, screw you. I don't have time to make a video. Yeah, I think I think hiring developers is just a whole different animal because, and anyway, so other roles works for amazingly. And it just allows me to quick skim a video where I don't have to waste time, anybody's time with an interview. I Out of those 200, I then followed up with those 50 and says, awesome. I was able within a couple seconds to see if there's any people that are just way off base. But then I invited the next batch. Okay, cool. You've made it the next round. Here's a hypothetical project. I want you to do it, like make a video of how you would do this project. Then that's pared it down even farther. And I ended up having, I only had the live interviews with like five people from 200. Yeah. I saved so much time. And again, I thought I was being a jerk. I thought people were going to complain, but more than half of the people that made videos would start by saying, wow, Nate, this is so fun. This interview process is really cool. Thanks for letting me make a video and getting to know you. And it saves so much time in that moment when you do decide to hire when you don't have time to vet, to really build automation into your hiring process. Yeah. And it must really, you know, with the video, I I love that because it's like, it it must make the selection process so much faster for you or anyone on your team. I mean, because we have a pretty, like a fairly long application form that they fill out. And then that feeds into into a Trello board that we filter through. And somebody else on my team kind of does all that pre-filtering work. But like a lot of it, when I'm evaluating candidates, it's, I mean, we hire a lot of writers, so we do need to see how they write. But a lot of it is reading through what they wrote and trying to imagine what they must be like in person. And sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. And if you just see them on video, it's like we would probably skip all those steps. So, yeah, there's a lot there. It's a very dense bandwidth, a high bandwidth like communication method. And it saves everybody a bunch of time. Yeah, very cool. Well, man, we we covered a lot of ground in this one. Um, you know, Nate, thanks so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it and really, really getting to know your story here. I'm sure we can probably go on for another hour and, and dig into all this stuff. But, uh, but yeah, so you know, stickyalbums.com is kind of the main domain. Uh, where else can people uh, connect with you these days? Yeah, we're going to be consolidating all of our blogs from as the, from the challenge of having four products. Now we're gonna we've got sticky.blog is where. Our main stuff is going to go going forward. But yeah, awesome. if you really liked this interview, we thought it was helpful. As So you kind of stand out from the noise of my other customer base. Um, hit me up on Twitter at Nate Grahek on Twitter. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. Yeah, we'll get everything linked up in the show notes as always. Nate, thanks a lot. You bet. Have a good one. Thanks. Yep. All right, now before we wrap up, let me ask you, 
What'd you think of this one? Was it good? You learned something? Are there any other topics you'd like to hear me cover on this pod? Well, let me know. No, I mean, really, like, let me know. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you. I'll read every single one. I try to reply to everyone. What's that? Oh, you're not on my list yet. Okay, well, head over to my site, productizepodcast.com. You can get on my email newsletter that way. I'll send you, you know, new episodes and all the show notes, but I'll also send you my newsletter where I share all sorts of articles and other insights on entrepreneurship, building products, productized services, software, SaaS, and other cool stuff there. So yeah, check that out over at productizepodcast.com. And of course, if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate it if you could head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, or at least just five stars. You don't even have to leave a review if you don't want to, but that would really go a long way to helping other folks like us find this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'll talk to you on the next one.